The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Pray with me. I stand in awe this morning, Father, of the scope of your mercy. We sinners have now been saved by grace if we are in Christ. The mere fact that that you sent prophets to warn is mercy. Thank you for opening up a book like Zephaniah to us over these last many weeks. I pray that it would bear fruit. That it would bear fruit in, in more people taking the step to read your prophets that they might find their hope in the gospel nurtured and their joy in Christ elevated. I pray that you'd meet us this morning. You have set us apart that we might be for your praise and for your renown in this world. When we lived for ourselves, you have made a change that we might live for you. And I ask that we would celebrate that fact this morning, awed by a God who declares that he will sing over his saved. Thank you that you are for us and not against us in your Son. We celebrate him as king this morning. Him as the great redeemer, oppression overcomer, healer, and savior. Meet us now, I pray, in this hour, for his glory and our good. In his name we pray, amen. Zephaniah chapter 3, final two verses of the book. The Savior's summons to satisfaction. Satisfaction is the ultimate motivation, and we've been meditating on it here the last several weeks. This this motivation to keep us seeking the Lord together and waiting on the Lord. Because ultimately, He promises much grace. So, I will begin reading in verse 14, and then we will... Focus in on verses 19 and 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? The Lord has taken away the judgments from you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. He says it as if it's already happened. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, on the very day that God stands as King in the midst of His people, on the day that songs are sung, songs of great deliverance, on that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Why? The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. So the day has come, the fires of God's wrath have been poured down, 
He is cleaning out the enemy, and yet there's still a sense of potential fear, the reason to fear. And he says, don't fear. It'll be said to Jerusalem in that day, this day, fear not. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And matching line for line the melody that was sung in verse 14, we read, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I rendered verse 18... I have gathered those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer approach. The great second exodus has already begun. The promise to redeem people from every tongue and tribe. Gathering them in. Reversing the Tower of Babel episode. He's already at work. I have already done it. And now verse 19. On that day, behold at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The end of Zephaniah. Verse 19 brings a promise that God will, on that future day, the very day that it speaks of in verse 8, therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a covenant witness. Keep waiting for me. Don't give up. Don't doubt. As dark as it gets, as hard as it gets, Trust that I will act on your behalf. You are on my mind. I haven't forgotten you. Keep waiting for me because it is still my decision to render judgment on the earth and it is my decision to do a life-transforming work. To move you from rebel to one who calls upon the name of the Lord and I won't leave you alone. Indeed, I'll surround you by a community. That's, that's what we saw in verses 8 through 10. A community that's multi-ethnic. This, these verses now, right here at the end of the book, kind of draw together a number of themes. In chapter 3, verse 1, he began to talk to Jerusalem as an oppressive city. And now he says to those who've been redeemed, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. Back in verse 15, he had said, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, looking ahead into the future in hope, so certain that it's as if he can declare it's already happened. I, the Lord, has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. So, how would you identify enemies in your own life? Where have you felt the pressures that you're longing for God to release. In verse 11, he said, On that day you shall not be put to shame, Jerusalem, because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, because in that day I'll remove all the proud, but I'll leave the humble. 
So there's a contrast between the God-dependent who are part of the city, identified with new birth certificates with the heavenly Jerusalem, and those who are living their own way and counted proud. All those proud people are the oppressors who lift up themselves at the expense of others. And in contrast, he says, in this day I'm going to deal with them. And the day is kind of getting stretched out. I argue that the day has started in the coming of Christ. The day when he at the cross bore all the fiery judgment on behalf of the elect. He stood on our behalf receiving all of God's vengeance and anger that God justly held against sinners. See, he received it. But there is still a sea of people left in this world who are against God and against his people. Who at the very name of Jesus, balk, argue, or even get hostile in their souls. This last week, I got to be part of the Bethlehem Conference for Pastors and Church Leaders. One of the things that we heard was, we're in a world increasingly where being a vocal Christian puts you on the margin. It used to be that it was the norm. And now, to say that you're a Christian puts you in a small camp. The world is still wide open for, your, for you being a Christian if you don't talk. So long as you leave it to yourself. As long as you leave your Christianity between your ears and in your own heart, then you're fine. But if all of a sudden you bring it out that there is one way to the Father, His name is Jesus, that God takes sin seriously, that there is an atomic bomb being readied to overcome everything, on a global scale. Not localized punishment, but global punishment. And it's justified. Because God is a good judge. That hell exists because God is good. If you begin to talk this way, all of a sudden we're in a world where you're going to be pushed and marginalized and oppressed. But the hope in this overlap of the ages where Christ has begun something, yet not completed something, as we live in this this window of already but not yet, what we need to hear is that on that day, this day that's getting stretched out, that's been started at the cross, and yet that ultimately, for the majority of the world, has not come. The future has only intruded into the present the judgment of God into the present, the new creation into the present, only for those who are in Jesus. For the rest of the world, they're just living in Adam in anticipation of the day of the vengeance of God. The day of the Lord has not come for them. So we're sitting here hoping for more, hoping for a complete fulfillment. And the hope that we need to hear today is that At that time, when the day comes to completion, God declares, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. Jesus comes into our world 
and begins to testify the kingdom of heaven is near. And one of the ways that he shows this is by healing lame people, by opening blind eyes, by taking people with physical disability and making them whole again. But he didn't do it on a global scale. No, the global healing still awaits the consummation of all things. But there's hope in this. There's hope for my brother Edward, who has Down syndrome, one year younger than me. Right now he is healthy. He's thriving in a community. And Edward loves Jesus. And I have hope that his body will be transformed. Because Jesus came not simply to heal the soul, but to heal the person. And I look forward to that. When he will no longer bear the marks of the curse in his being. The disciples said, Jesus, why is this man blind in John 9? Was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? Jesus said, no, you don't understand. It was in order that God might be glorified. There are certain ailments in our world that are not due to individual sin in any way. Oh yes, ultimately they're due to Adam. But we don't look at physical disability and say automatically, well, he's more sinful than me because I don't have that physical disability. But the promise in this text is that just as Jesus came and began to heal the broken-bodied, he's going to do it on a global scale. And when he does, it will be a testimony that the king has come. But we can read in this book the testimony that it's already begun. And we can plead that God will allow more of that future glory to enter into the present because he's still at work bringing healing over lame bodies. And then we remember that every single instance of physical disability. How does, Mo, how does God talk to Moses in Exodus 4.11? Who made man's mouth Moses? Who makes him deaf and dumb and seeing and blind? Is it happening by accident? No, it is I, Yahweh, who do all these things. And then he goes on to talk about Israel as having eyes but not seeing, ears but not hearing, hearts but not knowing. All physical disability in this world that the world is trying to oppress, that the world is trying to push aside increasingly. The day is probably not far off where the only place you'll find someone with Down syndrome will be in our churches. As the world represses the gift of God, That physical disability is a gift in the way that it points us to all of our own inability and neediness. And all of it will be overcome. On that day, it says, I will save the lame and gather the outcast. This is another echo of verses 9 and 10. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones. Remember, I, I identified that verse with 
Genesis 11, verse 9, where at the Tower of Babel, when the speech was changed and people were dispersed, Zephaniah appears to be envisioning a reversal of the Tower of Babel. An ingathering, not simply of, in verse 8, the gathering of nations and assembling of kingdoms for punishment, but also a great ingathering from as far as Cush, ancient Ethiopia, following the rivers of life up to the very presence of God in Jerusalem. Gathering in to testify and give witness to God's great saving work. Now we come to the end of verse 19. And I am going to take a little bit of a different tact than I think the, than the, at least the natural reading of the ESV is here, and I'm going to do my best to let you know why I'm doing it. So I'm always careful to do this. I don't like to do this. Differing with a group of my brothers and sisters who have gathered together to create a very good English translation for us. But in this instance, I think it's very important, and so I'm going to draw attention to it. This is what it says in our ESV. In that day, at that time, I will change their shame, the shame of the people, into praise and renown in all the earth. So the very lame that were experiencing shame, the outcast that were experiencing shame, God's going to remove their shame and replace it with praise and renown. At the climax of the book, as the ESV has it right here, It has God stripping away the dross, getting rid of the oppressors, getting rid of the proud, and elevating the humble. And that's biblical. That God will raise up His people in the center of the world, and the world will look at them. The question, though, is, does Zephaniah want us to end with the world looking at the restored people? Or does Zephaniah want us to end with the world looking at the restored people in order to magnify God? And I think explicitly it's the latter, not the former. The way the ESV reads verses 19 and 20, it's at the culmination of this great restoration, the ultimate end of the day of the Lord is that the people of God would be exalted, elevated up. That's what I read when it says, I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. The question at hand is, whose praise, whose renown? Verse 20, at that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. It sounds like, the way the ESV is presenting it, that the people are going to be praised and renowned. Here's what it says Word for word in the Hebrew. And I will place them for praise. Just just a little preposition that the ESV doesn't put in the text. But I wish they would have. 
I will place them for praise and for a name in the land of their shame. So, in the land in which they were once sinners, now saved by grace, in the very land where they have a history of rebellion, but they listen to Zephaniah's voice, and they've turned from their sin, they've taken seriously the holiness of God, and they've come and returned to Him. Now they've enjoyed salvation. They're calling upon His name. They're finding refuge in the King. They're singing His songs of salvation. In that very land, I will make them, this redeemed people who were once lame, now healed, who were once outcast, now redeemed, I will make them for praise and for a name. Turn with me back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 26. Deuteronomy 26. Everything goes back to Deuteronomy, right? This is the first time we see this language. And it bears a comparable ambiguity. It's in the very last verse of Deuteronomy 26. It's the culmination of the covenant that God is making with Israel at Horeb. And Israel on one side and God on the other are binding themselves in agreement into what we know of as the Mosaic Covenant. We read in verse 18, The Lord has declared today that you are a people for His treasured possession. And He has promised you, and, or as He has promised you. And He's also declared that you are to keep His commandments and that He will set you, ESV says in praise, it's the exact same preposition as we have in Zephaniah, He will set you for praise and for fame and for honor high above all the nations that He has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord as He has promised. In is the same preposition. In is a, usually it's, it's a different, completely different Hebrew preposition that is translated in. This preposition is most commonly translated to or for. So it's the same one as we have here. I will place them for praise and for a name in the land of their shame. Now, I think this is saying the same thing. That if you heed my voice in the Mosaic Covenant, something's going to happen. You're going to be set apart as a holy people, and as a holy people, you'll begin to be displaying a holy God. A holy people don't draw attention to themselves. They operate as magnifiers for someone greater. It's, it's like little telescopes walking around, and as people look at you, it's like they're looking up at a, what, a, what used to be a distant moon, and that moon is being magnified increasingly for all of its glories. You're magnifying not yourself, you're magnifying God. We begin to be reflectors of His glory in increasing ways so that when they see your good deeds, they glorify your Father in heaven. What I'm proposing is that this is about God's praise and God's 
name. And that the vision that Zephaniah has, and this is the culmination of the book, all of the day of the Lord, remember, the day of the Lord was driven by his jealousy. God's jealousy. In the fire of his jealousy, it says in verse 8, you can go back to Zephaniah. In the fire of my jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. Why is God jealous? Because so many in the world have failed to take note of him. And he is rightfully to be honored above all. He is necessarily to be honored above all. And he is lovingly to be honored above all. He's rightfully to be honored above all because he is God. He is necessarily to be honored above all because if he stops being honored above all, if he allows the world to exist wherein something other than him, he creates it, organizes it in such a way that something other than him gets highest honor. He stops being God. It is necessary for God as God to be the one who declares, love me with all. He is jealous with respect to his name. Rightfully so, necessarily so, and lovingly so. Why is it the most loving thing God could do to call us to live for His name and His renown? Any thoughts on that? Why is that a loving thing for God to do? In fact, the most loving thing for God to do, to call us to live for His glory and not our own. It's the only way to be saved. If he is the Savior, we have to draw attention away from ourselves and and say, you are the one. That is love. He's calling us away from self-reliance to radical God dependence because he loves us. Because when we're going our own way, we're running away from salvation, away from help, away from hope. And he's saying, live for me, love me, walk in my path. Because it's good for you. Make the right choices. Don't be foolish. Walk in the way of wisdom. Because it's good for you. And what will you find? You will find a deeper amount of joy for a longer amount of time than you'll find anywhere else. So Jesus is not simply our Savior. He is not simply our Sovereign. He becomes our Satisfier. He becomes our Redeemer, our Lord, and our Treasure. Because God loves us. And when we go after things that are empty, as Jeremiah says in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, it's like a cistern without water. A broken cistern that can't satisfy This is one that not many people like to go to because it does have, it does often um, just have a misunderstanding of how words work. It's called Young's Literal Translation. It was finished in 1898, so it's a little over 100 years old, but Young thought that you could just go between two languages that are very different, you should be able to go literally one word equals one word. So, so pick your word in Hebrew and replace it with a word in English and it's always going to make 
sense, and that's just not how it works. No language is like that. But notice how he handles it. Lo, I am dealing with all afflicting thee at that time, and I have saved the halting one, and driven out ones I do gather, and I have set them for a praise and for a name in all the land of their shame. So the question at hand is, whose praise is it? Whose name? But I have set them for a name and for praise. So it just took it word, one word and put it over here in our English text. So now let's consider some more explicit texts that I think support what I'm talking about. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Zephaniah. They lived at the same time, probably a little bit younger than Zephaniah. But he says some things that are almost word for word what Zephaniah says. Jeremiah 13 God says through his prophet, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, declares the Lord. I made them to cling to me. This was my purpose for them. I entered into a relationship with them. And now he echoes Deuteronomy 26, but he explains it in a fresh way. I created them to cling to me that they might be for me. A people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they wouldn't listen. Do you see that? That the peop- there are people, but there are people for him. They're a name for him. This is why I, I set you apart, Israel. From God's revealed will, he had created the old covenant community to magnify him. He called them with his words, love the Lord with all your heart. But they didn't. But had they done so, they would have been, as it says in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, if you will heed my voice and keep my covenant and be to me a treasured possession among all the peoples, if you'll be that kind of covenant keeper, then you shall be to me, to me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They'll operate as a priest for the sake of God. They'll be a holy nation for the sake of God. You'll be a kingdom of priests to me. A holy nation to me. But they failed in their responsibility. All it says is, I will set you. I will place you. And this, the cha- one of the challenges in the passage is their shame is just kind of hanging out there at the end and, and it's difficult to know where it's supposed to go. But the Um, The ESV doesn't translate the their shame, the there on the shame, even though it's, it's there in the text. And so they say, I will change, um, well, it has, I will change their shame into praise, um, but, oh, this is the, this is what they don't translate. They don't translate the them, I will place them. But the, the them is in the Hebrew text, but they, they take out the them and they just say, I will place their shame. That their, the place, sh- their shame, change their shame. And that, so that's how they render it. But I don't think they can do that because they're not translating the first them. So then we have to figure out how do we put it together in a different way, and, and that's what I'm proposing here. 
So I showed you a text in Jeremiah 13 where God actually says, this is what I created you for. A people for me, a name for me, but they wouldn't listen. Here's Jeremiah 33 saying, even though that's what I did in the old covenant and you didn't honor it, I will make it happen in the new covenant. Look what it says. And the city Jerusalem shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. Jeremiah is saying this is about God. The name is about God. The praise is about God. The glory is about God. I will place this city, Jerusalem, for this. For my exaltation. Ezekiel 36, very familiar passage. Just a few verses later, it's where God says, I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in all my statutes. I will take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. That that passage. Here's what it says in verse 23. The nations will know in that day that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. You have defiled or profaned my name is how the passage begins. So I'm going to reverse your... So so they are just living in a way that doesn't honor God. They might be bearing the name Yahweh. I'm a Yahweh follower, but they're bearing it in vain. That's the second of the Ten Commandments. You shall not, ESV, take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Literally, you shall not bear the name of the Lord in vain. Well, in the future, when I do a work called the New Covenant, I'm going to make it so that you don't bear my name in vain. Indeed, through you, before the eyes of the nations, I will vindicate my holiness. I'll display my holiness in you before their eyes. Think about Acts 1.8. So the Holy Spirit will come on you and you will be what? My witnesses. From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria ends of the earth. That's what God has created the church for, to be witnesses of Jesus. You'll be my witnesses. As the church is expanding, Christ will be being exalted. There's a hand. In Deuteronomy 28, you don't have to go there, it says, if Israel will but obey the law, then... Verse 10, all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid. Now, in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 13, we saw what happens when you fear men. You sin. It's the removal of the fear of men that moves us to live in holiness. Look at With me, those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, because they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And I talked about when we were there how fear of man influences our pursuit of holiness in negative ways over and over again. We fear loss, 
We fear lack. We fear what others will think of us. We fear that what you are declaring about the future is more right than what, I be- than what I've held to. And rather than coming out into the light and surrendering ourselves, we stay in the darkness and sin, sin, sin. And the vision that is given for a people that are raised up for the glory of God, living with surrendered lives, is that the the world around us, there's something deep in their soul, whether they put it to their lips or not, that is about fear. And so they respond negatively rather than positively more often than not. Seeing your good works and glorifying God in heaven, well, that could be an expression of worship, or more often than not, it's, it's ultimately bringing glory to God in a very different way because they stand hostile against it. They, they hate it. And they become increasing oppressors of those who are standing for the light. Steve? Last verse. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. All of these are day of the Lord text. He will save them as the flock of His people. For, like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on His land. For, how great is His goodness. How great is His beauty. We will be like crowns filled with jewels that are all about His goodness and His beauty. That's that's our testimony. That's what it should be. I know for me, I have to battle regularly the pursuit of talking about my goodness and my beauty. The battle of self-exaltation, the battle of wanting to be known. When I have been placed with a purpose that is not about me, it's for someone greater. His goodness, His beauty displayed through me, and I am like the jewel of a crown. That's not a bad place to be. God is the great mover here. From beginning to end, He's the great mover. He's our Savior. He's our warrior. He's our Redeemer. He's our purifier. And we respond as we should in awe. Well, when we find that we're part of the nations, and this is supposed to happen on an individual basis, communities are made up of people, right? Persons like you and like me. And this is, there's an all-readiness about everything that we're reading because Christ has already come, the new creation has already begun. And so this becomes an image of marching orders, of people who are rejoicing in their God, delighting in the salvation that is and will be, um, praying for increasing manifestations of healings for the lame and gathering of the outcasts, knowing that there's still more who need to be brought in. And increasingly, so, so we identify that we're only in Jesus if we have experienced already that, that humbling, that turning away from ourselves to a magnifying of Him as the only Savior, and yet also recognizing that I'm 
There's, there's a not yetness to this, and I'm still in need increasingly of deeper levels of humility. I need to, if I'm seeking the Lord, seek Him increasingly more and not give up even now as I await for the full, big, big, great day of the Lord to come. No, I don't think it is stretching it because of the intentionality of Christ in identifying physical healing with spiritual healing. So he's able to bring it together when they bring the, the lame man on the bed, the four friends, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And then everybody freaks out. What is he doing? That's spiritual healing. You have a physical need. I'm identifying. It points to something much deeper. And then the Pharisees say, you can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, which is easier? To simply say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. He doesn't say what is easier um, within the scope of eternity. Forgiving sins is much bigger. But, but he says, which is easier for, for a human? It's to simply say words without actual physical, tangible evidence. So he says, okay, take up your mat and walk. In order to testify that what he is saying is true and that he indeed has the power to heal physical, sorry, spiritual lameness. He heals the physical lame man. So I don't think you're stretching it. I think that is the trajectory that the lame are certainly physical, but there's more going on here. There's something bigger. It's, it's a cosmic new creation. A cosmic, it's, it's operating on a much bigger level than in the same way that the judgment is, is global. The healing is global. And, that, and, and we already saw a hint of that in verse 8 when he said, I will change their speech to a pure speech that they may call upon the name of the Lord. That's a reorientation using a physical image of the tongue or the lip, using a physical image of the lip to talk about a reorientation of the heart that is Godward. In verse 19, there's still an impersonalness to the redemption. He's still actually using language that recalls Jerusalem, the city, in feminine singular. And... So the your, I will deal with all your oppressors. He's talking about Jerusalem, the city. But then, in verse 20, he steps back and he ends the book in the most personal way. He brings it back to masculine plural, which is the same way, same structure he used to say, seek the Lord, gather together, wait for the Lord. All of those were in masculine plural, talking about every individual in the community who would be willing to listen. And he ends the book in this extremely personal way, repeating a lot of what we just heard. He says in verse 20, I will bring you in. Now you can't see the shift in the ESV. It sounds the same, but it's different. In verse 19, the you is the city. In verse 20, you is every individual who's been transformed by the Savior. I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you for a name and for praise among all the peoples of the earth. Notice there are still peoples around. It seems as though he's contrasting 
the group that's been saved from the group that hasn't been saved. Which means we're supposed to read in the day, on that day, at that time, it's the already but the not yet. If, if we're already talking about the, the finished, what the finished work is like, then everyone else, all the rebels have already been thrown into the lake of the fire. They've been burned up. There's no one, no, no peoples of the earth in which to put the church. But this is envisioning an already not yet world. And then he says at the end, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. This is the image of exile overcome, restoration complete, bounty delighted in, gifts enjoyed, fortunes restored. And we'll get to look at each other and say, wow, God's really blessed you. God's really blessed you. And we'll delight in it. When, when, when we have pure hearts, we delight in what God's doing, in what He's giving to one another in a way that Jesus is glorified. I think that's what it's saying. So, so I, you can see how I translated it a little bit different. I will make you for a name and for praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. Yahweh has said. The book began, the word of the Lord. Everything that Zephaniah speaks, all the warnings, all the promises, all the urgings, the challenges, all of it, the word of the Lord, and that's how the book ends. Yahweh says all this. And because of that, we can trust that it's authoritative. We can trust that it's faithful. And that should give us great hope. That's right. I, that's, very, that's very, very possible. Thanks for drawing attention to that. Yeah, text like the last verse in Romans 2. And even before that, Romans 2 verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing, listen to this, to those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, those are the good guys. He will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So you can seek glory, here's the words, glory, honor, and immortality, and not be self-seeking. And then the very last verse of chapter 2, it says, this person, so, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. There is, without question, that image of God praising, glorifying, honoring, bestowing immortality upon those who have honored him. So that, that and, and I, I note that in my, in my book, so that, that, that's an entire section of texts 
But I don't think that's how Zephaniah ends his book. And so that's what's at stake. But he, he could have ended it the way that the ESV, I think, portrays it, and it not have been doctrinally wrong. That's, that's important to know. So, in that day it will be said, fear not. Fear not. Don't fear. Don't fear. Our God is with us, and He's a warrior. For God's sake, delight. Delight in the Lord who shows the sovereign care for His people by rescuing them from their enemies. As we humble ourselves and seek the Lord together and wait upon Him, as we reach into the future and take the joy that's been promised us and allow it to create delight in the present, our desire changing into delight so that we can sing aloud already in what He is already accomplishing in light of what He started with Jesus, God gets glory. God gets glory. Things to ponder as you leave that I wish we had 15 minutes to talk about. How have we or you met Jesus in the study of Zephaniah? And what are some of your greatest takeaways from this book? Don't let this stop in here. Answer those on your own. Answer them with your spouse. Answer them across the lunch table. And then tell your neighbor about it. Tell your girlfriends, your boyfriends. I don't call Keith my boyfriend too often, but... um, (laughs) So, I... You know what I mean. Um, And then... Be bold and start doing your devotions in the prophets and see what God does. Look for Jesus in the prophets. Look for the church in the prophets. Look for already but not yet gospel-centered hope in the prophets. It's our Bible. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for these such beloved people. I love them and I care about the outcome of their faith. Thank you for Zephaniah for these 15 weeks you've given us in this book. And thank you that we can now turn a corner and hopefully get some tough questions answered. I pray that you'd help me be faithful, be honored in what takes place in this room week after week. Heal marriages, overcome wayward hearts, magnify Christ through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant, 
for His glory in Christ.